You know what I can't stand? Uh, being disappointed. Anybody love being disappointed? No, don't raise your hand. You're a liar. Like no one likes to be, you ever go to the freezer and you open it up and it looks like someone has left a, a, like a thing of Briar's ice cream in there. And you're like, yes, I didn't know we had ice cream. And you go to take it out and then it's empty. And you're like, what kind of evil demonic person put this empty container of ice cream, right? And you're like, this is so, dis- I hate being disappointed. Uh, I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan. Gosh. Love us or hate us, you got to understand, like, we think every year we're going to win the Super Bowl. Like, we really believe this. Like, I understand if you're a Browns fan or a Jets fan, like, you never expect to win games. But we're like, this is the year. We are totally going to win the Super Bowl. And then halfway through the season, we're like, shoot, it's not going to be this year. And we have to, like, go into hiding and don't talk to our friends and forget to wear our our, our gear. Because we're just like, I hate being disappointed. Disappointment is rough because we make plans. I had plans for that ice cream. For the brief moment that I thought we had ice cream, I was going to eat it all, <laughs> you know? I thought we were going to win the Super Bowl. I thought we were going to do We had plans, and then they fall to pieces, and it's just like, oh. When I was in kindergarten, I learned uh, all too well what it meant to be disappointed. It was the first real experience with disappointment. Um, man, there's this little girl in my class. She was the cutest little thing, man, this curly brown hair, freckles. Angel sang when she like got the crayons out of her bag. I mean, it was just amazing. I was like, I'm going to tell this girl how much I love her. And five-year-old Chris had a plan. Valentine's Day was coming up, so I went home. I, went, I remember digging through my favorite stuffed animals, and I got the best teddy bear. This is the one. You know, the one he's got both eyes, and like, he's it, right? And I'm going to give this to this girl. And, uh, and, and also went to my He-Man Masters of the Universe comic coloring book. Remember that guy? Oh, yeah, you want to impress a lady color a man in a loincloth and so I get the picture and I'm coloring and I'm like this is gonna be great and I'm playing like I'm gonna hey how are you and so I'm thinking so Valentine's Day comes I go to the playground and whatever I remember we were outside and and I had this thing cumbersome behind my little five six-year-old back and I'm like hey I got you something happy Valentine's Day and I hold out the teddy bear and I hold out the he-man masters of the universe coloring page and no lie she takes the teddy bear out of my hand and she throws it on the ground and then she takes the He-Man Masters of the Universe coloring sheet and she rips it in half and she says, ew, I don't like you. <laughs> that was not fun. I hate being disappointed. I had plans and my plans stunk. Maybe you've had, maybe you've had disappointing moments in your life. Like you, you went to college and you were going to change the world. And then now you're like, man, I'm in my mid-30s and I'm... Still not changing the world. You thought maybe like your high school teacher would call you one day, say, hey, I'm really proud of you. You're still waiting on that call. Hasn't happened yet. You would hope that you would meet your soulmate and like they're just still not even on match.com. Like surely one more blind date and I can figure this out. And then you just, and it, it hurts, right? It's disappointment, disappointment, disappointment because we make plans and, and maybe you've been sucker punched by a layoff at work. You didn't even see it coming. Maybe the IRS called and they'd let you know you're really bad at TurboTax. <laughs> it's time to figure something out. Disappointment's no fun, uh, but that's how it goes, right? That's life. Uh, it actually, um, it shouldn't surprise us because disappointment is actually a law of nature. Are you familiar with the, the laws of thermodynamics? Yeah, there's these laws and there's one of them, uh, and, and I believe it's the second law of thermodynamics. It's called entropy. You know what entropy is? This is a scientific definition, entropy. Everything will eventually decline into disorder. Thanks, science. Like even science says, look, stuff's going to let you down. Stuff's going to break. It's going to rust. It's going to fall apart. It's going to get old. I'm a good dad, so I tell my kids often, get used to disappointment. (laughs) 
Because we need to understand like things aren't always going to go how we hope that they're going to go. And, and that brings us to today. Because what the heck are we supposed to do? We're supposed to be just happy with disappointment. Now, I know there's good days and there's bad days. But in the end, we've got to recognize like the things of this earth are temporary. What are we supposed to do with that? So today, today, guys, I want to give you some hope. We're starting a new teaching series called Hope is rising. And the next four weeks, we're going to be looking through the final week of Jesus's life before he uh, was crucified and then rose from the dead, literally rising, defeating death, the most disappointing thing ever. And we'll be looking mostly at the book of Mark. Uh, if you've got a Bible, you want to go and grab that, we'll be in the book of Mark today. But you can reconstruct this final week of Jesus' life from the four biographies of Jesus' life that we have in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's so crazy because no portion of Jesus' life is as well documented as the final week of his life. I mean, we, we have uh, a good chunk of about three and a half years of solid teaching and understanding about his life, but nothing is more well documented than this final week of Jesus' life. Um, you might remember uh, two series ago, we did a teaching series called That's Gonna Leave a Mark. Remember that? And we did like the first third of the book of Mark, and I said, we'll be back in the book of Mark. Well, here we are, we're back, and we're gonna kind of be going to the last third of the book of Mark here this morning. Um, as we look at this final week, in fact, if we look at the entirety of Jesus' life, we learn something. That at its core, the life of Jesus is a story about hope. It's a story about how, look, the world has got disappointing moments, but you don't have to be stuck in that. You don't have to stay in that. There is something better. There is something bigger. And, and God set this plan into motion thousands of years, even before he came into the world as Jesus. Uh, as you look through the Old Testament of the Bible, which is the first two-thirds of our English Bibles, one thing we see a lot of is kind of this, uh, this message, this, this, these glimmers of hope. As different people, uh, writers and, and poets and prophets, talked about a day when God was going to save the whole world and bring hope into the world. One example of that, we're just going to read one of them today, is in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. You can flip over there if you want to, but it's going to be on the screen behind me. This is Isaiah prophesying about a day of hope. This is something we often read at Christmas time, but it says this, For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Thank goodness, because it needs to be on somebody's shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. Have you ever had a day where you're like, I just would like some peace? And in the kingdom of God, through this kind of prophesied Messiah, there's a promise of peace. And that brings hope. And so for centuries, God's people had this promise of hope. There were actually hundreds and hundreds of prophecies about this person who was going to come into the world. He's going to change everything. And they were kind of putting the pieces together and saying, who is this person going to be? And they began to call him the Messiah, which means God's chosen or anointed one, and the, 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 the Savior. That promise was a promise to them, but it was also a promise to us. That when the bottom falls out, when we've had enough there's something better that God can lift us up and give us hope. And so hope is rising. And so in this series, we're going to be looking at the final week before Jesus revealed all of that. Um, every week at Venture, we love to look to the Bible for answers to the life's, life's most important questions. And so I gave you an invitation a second ago to grab a Bible. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we give them away for free. We want everyone to have a free, good, easily read version of the Bible. There's a little table as you exit this room, just to your left. Take a Bible, take it home with you and read it during the week. We'd love for you to have a free copy of the Bible. Feel free to get your phone out and use an app or the internet or Facebook, if that's what you'd rather do right now. Uh, but, and we're going to be in the Bible. We're going to be in Mark. We're going to 
to be in chapter 11 today. Like I said, Mark is a biography of Jesus' life. And as you flip over there, I'm going to give you a little bit of setup for the passage we're going to be in this morning. Uh, Mark did an interesting thing with this book. If you'll remember, when we talked about Mark uh, about two months ago, I kind of gave him a nickname. Many people have called Mark the gospel of action. In other words, as Mark is writing, he's like, zoom, 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 zoom. You may have had friends like this where you're talking to them. And you're like, did we change subjects? I, I had no idea we changed subjects. And this is kind of how Mark writes. In each like, paragraph or each section, he'll start with the phrase, and then immediately they did this. And then immediately they did that. And as you read, you're like, oh, it's three days later. I didn't know this much time had pl- passed. And so he moves like a madman, Mark does, in the first 10 chapters of his book. And he covers over three years of Jesus' life in 10 chapters. 10 chapters, all right? And then he does something in chapter 11. He slams on brakes. And from chapter 11 in the last six chapters of the book of Mark, he spends those six chapters on just one week. Why would he do that? Three years in 10 chapters. One week in six chapters. Because it's a really important week. Some things are going to happen here, and it's going to be evidence for us 2,000 years later, to believe that Jesus is who he said he was, that he was God in the flesh who came to live on earth and that he could bring us hope and that he could lift us up from sin and temptation, that he could provide us a place in heaven for all eternity. This is a major thing. And so he does this thing, he slams on brakes and he spends this last six chapters in just one week. And there's a couple reasons that I think he does that. First of all, uh, it was because of the particular week that it was, okay? The, the week that we're going to be looking at was a festival period in Jewish culture. It was called the Passover festival. And they would spend a good solid week, like Christmas vacation, you might spend three days on the road. Um, I kind of trying to think of a holiday that we spend seven solid days celebrating every single day. This is something that, that they would do. It was a big, big, big festival. It was also like their, their 4th of July because it was kind of a celebration of their independence. 400 years uh, of slavery in Egypt ended, and this was generations before, but they celebrated that with the, uh, with the Passover festival. So it was a big, big time. Now, I say this because I think one reason that Mark and the other authors spent a lot of time in this final week is because this was a time of great political turmoil for the people. Remember election season? Remember about every four Novembers and everyone's losing their mind? In Jerusalem at this time, was a, there was this political pot that was boiling, okay? A couple of things were going on. First of all, the Roman Empire had occupied the area that the Jews were living in and they were under military rule and basically everything they did was under the eye of the Roman Empire and the people didn't like it. People don't like being oppressed. They don't be, like being ruled by other people and people were ready to be free of the Romans, And so there was this kind of attitude among the people, like, we're ready to revolt. We're ready to rise up. We're ready to have something different going on other than this. And then you add to it the fact that it's a big political holiday. It's religious and it's political. For the Jews, politics and religion, they just kind of, we avoid both. They're like, let's mix them together. And so that's kind of how the Jews did this thing. And uh, so Jesus walks into this moment in this final week, and there's a specific social climate that's happening. That's the first reason, I think, that we spend so much time in this one week. The second reason is this, because this is the week that leads up to Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. It was the reason Jesus came into the world. And so as this whole story kind of culminates on this final week, Mark and the other authors say, whoa, 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 let's zoom in. And let's talk about what Jesus came to do. Okay, so that's some setup. We're in Mark chapter 11, uh, and Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem for what he knows will be the final time in his life. Let's jump in. Mark chapter 11, verse 1. 
So as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany and the Mount of Olives, you know where all those places are, right? They did. Um, Jesus sent ahead two disciples. And he said to these guys, look, go to the village ahead of you. And just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it, bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, oh, the Lord needs it. And we'll send it back here shortly. So they went ahead and they found a colt inside in the street. And they tied it, it was tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there said, hey, what are you doing? Untying that colt. And Jesus answered, and they answered as Jesus had told them to. And the people let them go. Fine, take the colt. Okay, pause right there. We're going to pick up at verse 7 in just a minute. I don't know why, but when I was a kid, I always pictured this story a little differently than I understand it today. Uh, I pictured that Jesus was sending these guys in like bandits under the cover of darkness, and they were sneaking around like the Hamburglar. Remember that guy from the, yeah, Hamburglar? And he was like, you know, coming in in the middle of the night and like maybe sneaking out alleyways like, oh, there's the donkey. Get him. And so maybe it was like Jesus was sending them into some kind of sketchy. Um, that's not what happened at all. I was totally wrong. And if my Sunday school teacher lied to me or if I just was stupid, I don't know. But as I read and understand it better, it actually was way cooler than that. First, uh, Jerusalem was a major metropolis city. And Jesus, in a, especially the last six months, but even longer, had been building a great reputation there. In fact, at this time, there were hundreds of people thousands of people and sometimes tens of thousands of people who were gathering just to hear Jesus teach, just to see him. He was like a celebrity. On top of that, uh, he had also just uh, appointed like 70 um, leaders to go out and to preach for him. And so like there was just Jesus and then there were the, the 12 disciples, which were his kind of inner circle of people that, that followed him. But then there were 70 more people that their specific goals to go out and teach and say, hey, listen, let me tell you the stuff that Jesus is saying. He had a really good reputation. On top of that, just recently, I think it was like a week before, he had just raised a guy from the dead, a guy named Lazarus, and word spread. Man, it was just like, it was like pop culture news. Did you hear about the guy that raised somebody from the dead? He was totally dead. He had been dead for three days. This guy, Jesus walks in and says, hey, come out of your grave. And he did. He just came out of his grave. So like this rumor's circulating. And so people already know who Jesus is. He had a really good reputation. And by this time, people would have easily recognized Jesus. They would have recognized many of his disciples. And many people were already starting to call him Lord as a title. So Jesus walks in, or these, these disciples walk in and say, hey, the Lord needs your donkey. And they're like, oh, Jesus needs it? Take it. It's yours. We'll bring it back. I just wish I had this kind of clout. Like, okay, hey, listen, uh, Chris, could you just run downtown? There's a Lamborghini sitting down in the, the parking garage down there. If anyone asks you why you're taking it, just say, hey, Chris needs it. And they'll be like, cool, you know, just make sure you wear your seatbelt. Like, who has that kind of clout? But this guy, Jesus, says, listen, go take the donkey. Um, this story is told in all four of the biographies of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each one gives us a little bit of detail about it. Um, I would have loved to have this opportunity to see this whole thing play out. Because what's about to go down just really gives us a picture of who Jesus is. As, as Mark is telling the story, in classic Mark style, he totally rushes to the next scene. Remember, I told you he's the gospel of action. But uh, a, a, as we read the other stories, we get a bigger picture. And, and, and it kind of gives us some explanation. This is a question that I wonder if you've even asked this morning or ever before. Why did Jesus need a cult in the first place? That doesn't make any sense. Why did he, I mean, couldn't he have just walked? He's been walking for three and a half years. Would it have been fine for him just to 
walk in. Uh, maybe we can make up all kinds of reasons. Maybe he had some kind of weird contract writer, and he's like, I want in my dressing room only green M&Ms and a young colt tied up at the, <laughs> at the front door. Like, I don't know why. Uh, it turns out uh, that this colt, which in this case is actually a young donkey, so a picture, picture donkey, is actually one of hundreds of reasons that people believe in Jesus to this day. This, this donkey. This is, this is an important donkey, okay? You've never met one? Here's one. And let's see why. Because as this story is told in a couple of the other gospels, specifically in the book of Matthew in chapter 21, we find out that Matthew is a cool book because Matthew's whole goal is to teach the Jewish people how Jesus fulfilled the prophecies from the Old Testament. You're skeptical about Jesus? Okay, let's review. Let's go through all these prophecies. And there was this one prophecy in Zechariah. And Matthew brings it up. So let's read what Matthew says. Matthew 21, verse 4. It'll be on the screen here behind me. It says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. And he's talking about the prophet Zechariah. You can read that in your footnotes. Verse 5. This is the prophecy. Say to daughter Zion, which is a, a kind of a nickname for Jerusalem and the Jews. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so for generations, Jewish teachers had read the prophecies, prophecies of Zechariah and they knew what the descriptions of the Messiah were. And they knew that one day the Messiah was going to come and there was already plenty of buzz around the city that this Jesus guy is doing some amazing, amazing things. He raised a guy from the dead. He's doing teaching like no one had ever done. He's doing miracles upon miracles. Thousands of people, some people estimate, had been healed in some way because of one of Jesus' miracles. So there is this buzz. The understanding was that Jesus might be the Messiah. Like we've been talking about this guy for hundreds of years. This might be him. And the other understanding was that when the Messiah was ready to make things official, he was going to ride into town on a, what? Donkey. Donkey. Um, this is one of dozens and dozens of prophecies that were fulfilled by Jesus, very specifically, proving that he was the Messiah. Uh, and I want to kind of give a kind of side disclaimer. If you're a skeptic, I have been such a skeptic about things and, and even things in the Bible a lot. Uh, and it might be like, well, if, if it was a prophecy about the Messiah, that he would ride in a town on a donkey. Uh, well, couldn't Jesus have just made that happen by himself? Like, hey, I, I want to be the Messiah. I want to go get a donkey. You know, the answer to that question is, yeah, absolutely. Jesus could have totally said, you know, the Messiah's going to ride on a donkey. I should get a donkey. Th this is what's really cool. Yes, Jesus could have made that prophecy happen, but there were hundreds of others that he had no control over. Some of the prophecies about Jesus' life, and we're going to talk about these in three, more we in three weeks from now, but some of the prophecies about Jesus' life prophesied where he was going to be born. And the type of family and situation he was going to be born into. Even down to when he was going to be born. The type of things that were going to happen to him to show who he was. And then even very specifically, how he would die. These are things that you can't control. These are things you can't look on Craigslist and be like, need a donkey. You know, need to be born in Bethlehem, right? Like this is, this is he had no control over this. So this is cool. But at this point in Jesus' life, he was at the pinnacle of his popularity. And there were hundreds and hundreds of people following Jesus. And the rumor was that Jesus is possibly the Messiah. And he's going to change everything. The problem is there was a misunderstanding about what the role of the Messiah was going to be. See, when you look back through Jewish history, anytime the people needed a savior, someone to come in and save the day, they would save with a sword. 
If you look back all the way near the beginning, there's a book called Judges. And if you read through the Judges, these Judges, they weren't like uh, sit with a big white wig on and a gavel. This wasn't the kind of judge it was. These Judges were actually more like generals. And they would come in and they would lead armies and they would fight against the bad guys and they would find victory for God's people. And so in their minds, when they thought about the Messiah, they thought general, warrior, sword. And there was other people like kings that would come in. The kings would lead these battles and lead these armies. And so they think Messiah, they think Savior, they think general, warrior, sword. But that's not what Jesus came to do. The timing would have been perfect for these Jewish people who wanted a Messiah. Remember? They didn't like being oppressed by the Romans. They were ready to revolt. They heard there was a Messiah and they're ready. And so check this out. If you do the political math on what's going on in Jesus's life right now, uh, number one, item number one, the people are ready for revolution. Okay. Number two, they're convinced that Jesus was this warrior general king guy. Number three, it's go time, baby. But dump the tea in the Boston Harbor. We are ready. We are ready to go. And so to top it all off, word starts spreading through Jerusalem that he's called for the donkey. This is an important donkey. So it really explains why the next few verses happen. Look at verse seven. If you've ever read this story before and you're like, why in the world did this scene ever happen? Now you can understand. Look at verse seven. So they brought the colt to Jesus. They threw their cloaks over it and he sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road. And while others spread branches that they had cut in the fields, these are like palm tree branches, not like oak branches, because that'd be, that'd be dangerous. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, and they're shouting this, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the, na- comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. This phrase, Hosanna, it meant like kind of two things. Uh, on the very base level, Hosanna kind of means this. Woohoo! That's kind of what Hosanna means. But more specifically, it means deliver us. This is the thing that you would uh, shout to the batter who comes up the bottom of the ninth inning and it's a baseball game and like the, 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 the score is tied. I went to a UNCW baseball game last Sunday. This exact thing, ha- thing happened. They were tied up. Guy walks up. They're like, we need you to hit a home run. Like, if you can hit a home run, game over, we win. We might yell, Hosanna, deliver us. We need you to do this now. And so the people are shouting this. Um, I have this weird memory from when I was a kid of this one Christmas parade. I think I was like six years old. And my dad had a friend in town named Sam. And uh, we'd gone to Raleigh to watch the Christmas parade. And so uh, I was, I remember for whatever reason, I was riding on, on Sam's shoulders. Now remember, I'm like five or six years old. This is probably after I had my heart broken in kindergarten by the girl uh, who wanted to tear up my coloring pictures. And so I, maybe I was already having a bad day. Maybe my mom wanted to lift me up to see Santa Claus. I don't know. But we're going, I remember everyone was excited about this parade. And I don't, I don't know why people were so excited about parades. Uh, have you ever been to a really great parade? Probably not. No, most of us have not been to a great parade. Most parades are not very good. The Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, I mean, you got like Harry Connick Jr. singing with Big Bird and the the crew of Hamilton is doing a tap dancing act. Like, that's awesome. Most parades have no business on TV, okay? But anyway, so maybe you disagree with me, but I'm just really cynical about parades. But anyway, I'm riding in on this parade and I'm on Sam's back and we're riding in, we're walking into this parade route and I have no memory of the actual parade. All I remember was about a block away, my legs fell asleep. You ever had that like, like numb, but excruciatingly painful, like tingling in your feet? Well, I'm like six-year-old Chris, and I was, I guess, too nervous to tell Sam that my feet really, really hurt. So we get to the parade route, and I have no memory of the parade, but all I remember is like, oh, dear God, please, Hosanna, right? <laughs> Deliver me. I, my legs hurt. I'm ready to get off this guy's back, and that's all I remember. Um, I tell you that story because I think most parades, like while we're in the middle of them, you know, the best parts when like the Shriners are riding the go-karts around, and it's really cool. This is not just a lame parade. 
This parade is a parade of extremely huge significance. People pour into the streets. They begin lining the roads. They're laying their clothes on the ground and they're saying, Hosanna, let's rebuild the kingdom of our forefather, David. Let's revolution, let's revolt. Let's start something new. We want to coronate Jesus as our king. Dr. Mark Moore is a, is a uh, Bible scholar that has written a lot on this topic. And he says this about this moment. He said, both of these, and he's talking about the gestures of yelling Hosanna and laying things in the street like this. Both of these are political and regal gestures. In other words, the crowds welcomed Jesus as the king in the holy city, and they are ready to coronate a new king to overthrow the Romans. Can you imagine being the kid eating your bowl of cereal? And mom goes, you got to come outside and see this. And this is a monumental moment. The atmosphere in the crowd is clear. They're excited because they're ready for revolution. They see Jesus and they know that he's the prophesied Messiah now because he's riding the donkey. And they think that he's going to lead a revolt against the Romans. Hope is rising in these people. But there's a twist. These people who are so very excited about a guy on a donkey are about to be very disappointed because Jesus isn't coming to build their kingdom. He's not coming to overthrow the government that's oppressing them. He's not there just to kick out the Romans. And what's crazy is when they realize this, this is a spoiler if you don't know the whole story, but in just a few days, this same crowd that was screaming, Hosanna, 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 this same crowd's gonna turn on Jesus and they're gonna start yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And it's so easy to get frustrated at this crowd because as you read the story of Jesus and his teaching, he all throughout his time says, I'm not the king that you think I'm going to be. I'll just read you a couple of them. You know, jot them down. You can. John chapter six, verse 15. He says, I'm not here to become the king of Israel. That couldn't be more clear. <laughs> he says in Matthew 3, 2, I'm here to teach you to turn your hearts to God. He says in Luke 19, 10, he says, I came to seek and save the lost. I didn't come to set up a kingdom. I came to seek and save the lost. He says in John 10, 10, I came so that you can have life, abundant life. He's been very clear about what his purpose was. So it's easy for us to read this story and think, why would these people get the idea that he was going to be a general and a king and a warrior? But guys, I think we are guilty of this all the time. How often do we just think about our little kingdom, our little world, and we're like, God, if you would just fix this, it, what I think you want to do for me is to just fill up my bank account or just give me the, the dreamy somebody that I want to spend the rest of my life with. Or if I could just have this happiness in this moment. And Jesus says, no, I came to give you something deeper than just this temporary satisfaction. And we get ourselves worked up and we get ourselves trying to find hope in these other things. These guys had hope right in this moment because they thought Jesus was going to build a new kingdom. And I think sometimes we turn to God, not because of what he really is giving us, which is an opportunity to be reunited with God, but because we just hope he's just going to put a little something extra in our stocking. We just hope that maybe he's just going to hook us up and get us out of the mess that we put ourselves in. Does he have the ability to do those things? Absolutely. But that was not his primary reason for being here. His primary reason for being here was to reunite the heart of man with the heart of God. He saw that the world was broken and he wanted to partner with us to put it back together. So these people had put their hope in the wrong thing. And the things that we put our hope in often are so temporary. It's entropy at work. Remember that law? Everything's just declining into disorder. It's the world we live in. And that's something that's in the physical. Here's the thing about Jesus. He's not from the natural 
He's from the supernatural. He doesn't live by the law of entropy. He doesn't live by the law of gradual decline and to decay and decay and disorder. That's not who Jesus is. He rises above that and he offers to reach down and pull us up with him. That's the gospel, which is the good news about Jesus. The hope of Jesus is actually what he teaches in Matthew chapter 11. This is what he says. And I read this all the time because it's one of my favorite scriptures. Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and I will give you rest for your souls. In your life, what have you put your hope in? Uh, And have you noticed that it tends to not last forever? (laughs) Even the best things in this world. I love my marriage. I've been married 15 years and we've got a very happy marriage and I love all, but you know, I know that it can't last forever. When we took our vows, we said, till death do us part. That's sobering. I'm not saying that to be like a killjoy. I'm saying even the greatest things of this world do have an expiration date, right? But Jesus says, I want to give you rest for your soul. And I want to give you something that transcends the physical and the natural. Jesus never lets us down. He, he defeated the ultimate disappointment, which is what we celebrate at Easter, death. He said, you don't have to be a slave to death anymore. I'm going to give you something to rise above that. And then he stands on the front lines of battle for our soul every day. And that every time we straggle down some lane that's going to get us all messed up, he says, just come back to me. That's called grace. <laughs> he said, come back to me. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. The only thing that matters is your future and my love and my grace. Will you please come back to me? Turn your eyes, turn your heart, turn your mind back to me. I've won the war. I'm not here to be the king of a little mis- miserable, measly kingdom on earth. I'm the king of the universe. I'm the king of kings. The name above all names. The prince of peace everlasting father and of his rule there will be no end Mark in classic fashion uh, he just stops the story right there he's like that's enough (laughs) and so we're going to stop our reading of the scripture this morning that's it I want you to come back next week because we're going to pick up right where he leaves off and we're going to see what happens next but here's the thing here's the challenge here's what we go home, home with as Jesus begins to send these people out into the world and says, listen, I want you to go t- tell people about my love. He gives them a mission. Now, over the last, uh, about a month, we were in this series called Chain Reaction. If you, if you missed it, basically the goal uh, was to understand that we're on this mission to continue a chain reaction of being the lead domino in someone else's life to help them take steps to get closer to God. That's our goal. And when Jesus sends people into the world, he says, listen, go and tell people about it. And what do we tell them? Tell them the hope is rising. What's hurting in your life? What's broken? What needs connection with God? And here's what you can do. Tell them Easter's coming. (laughs) Do you know that Easter is the number one time of the year when someone who would not normally come to church will come? Your friends that you've been praying for, that you've been hoping would do better uh, in their life, or at least maybe know some of the joy that you found knowing Jesus. Or maybe you're new to church. Maybe this is your very first time. First of all, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're kind of seeing kind of what Jesus is all about. And I want you to know that it changes lives and know who Jesus is. Can we do this as a church? Let's make Easter a day where we can say, look, we're going to celebrate that hope. Not only is rising, because that's like a cool title for a sermon series, but hope is risen. Hope is with us now. And it can give us peace for the future. Hosanna. Deliver us. Hope is rising. And guess what? Unlike the empty ice cream container in your freezer... 
It'll never disappoint. It's always full and it's overflowing. Can we just pray together this morning? Let's go to God. God, we thank you for this day. I praise you for the hope that you bring, for the opportunity to know you, for the chance to live in your grace. Um, and thank you for the story of Jesus and just the fact that uh, uh, you looked down at this world, you saw the, the state that it was in, and you said, I, I can do something about that. Man, thank you. You're so good. Thank you for this church family and what it means to be a part of it. And um, God, as we just continue with our day and with our week, Lord, may we shine your light and reflect your light back into other people's lives so they can just know that even though we might not be perfect and we don't always have our stuff together, you are and you do. We love you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.